I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, Canada's national digital theatre. Each week, we take some of the hottest plays and transform them into contemporary audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome back to Play Me. This episode is a second installment in a miniseries called Play Me Mono, produced in association with the Playwrights Guild of Canada. Over the past several months, we've been hosting some conversations with some of Canada's most celebrated playwrights, recording a monologue they've written and sitting down in front of a live audience to dive deeply into their writing process. This episode features a monologue by Judith Thompson from her play Palace of the End, a docudrama play that consists of three monologues telling the real-life tales of Iraq before and after the 2003 invasion. Judith talks about the play one of the monologues from the piece, and her writing process in general. Intercut throughout the conversation, you'll hear snippets from the monologue, and at the end, you'll hear the monologue in full. Here is Judith Thompson, recorded live at the Red Sand Castle Theatre in Toronto, Canada. I think we all have something, some time in our lives where we just don't understand our action or our inaction. Why didn't I say something? Why didn't I do something? And even though this is very specific and it's much bigger than most of our uh, moments like that, uh, I'm interested into how we all become implicated I'm Judith Thompson. I'm a playwright, director, and actor. The name of the play is Palace of the End. It's a play that consists of three monologues from characters based on real individuals who had a part, who played a part in the war in Iraq, uh, which continues to this day. The monologue I chose, it's called Instruments of Yearning which is the name Saddam Hussein gave to his secret police who were the torturers, like the SS, the individuals who tortured people. And I thought that was a very bizarre translation, considering what they did. The torture jail was a fairy tale castle from long ago where the king had lived. We had not liked him either. He was Saudi, but he was nothing compared to Saddam. The gardens were tended by a master gardener, a true genius of nature. And so the castle was called the Palace of Flowers until this dark age when it became the Palace of the End. 
I wanted the voice of an Iraqi woman in order for the piece to have some authenticity. And what did I know other than research? And luckily my neighbor, Samara, is Iraqi. And uh, I asked her if, if I could come in and we could talk about Iraqi women. And so she very generously invited me in for the afternoon. My neighbor told me about the castle being called the Palace of the Inn. And it really struck me as a writer that something so magnificent and beautiful and admired could become so dark, could become the absolute reverse. It was something children, everybody wanted to go there and, and walk through these gardens. And then it was a place of, of horror. And that's exactly what a tyrant does, turns a beautiful place into a, a horrific place. She said, I want to translate a story for you about a woman who was one of the heads of the Communist Party uh, during the Ba'athist regime. The Communists were the only plausible opposition to Saddam Hussein. She read an account of the torture of a woman and her family, this woman who was the head of the Communist Party. She just translated it directly from the Arabic. I went home and just wrote. I wrote the monologue then, 45-minute monologue. I think I had to catch a plane two hours from then. And it, um, I changed it, but not that much. Uh, I was very inspired by what she said, and the character just came through. It's such a, a horrible story that she tells. It's so wrenching that I thought, and, and what she feels guilty of, and maybe is guilty of, is... It's difficult for us to absorb as an audience. So I thought, you know, she has to be a sort of commanding uh, character, a sort of likable, whimsical character. And that's why the flowers and just the way she thinks about language. She was a teacher and uh, she likes to amuse. What is fascinating to me is that women are the names of flowers but not all flowers. Because if you are English and you are named Daffodil, people will laugh. That is what my friends have told me. And if they want to insult a man, say to a man that he is not masculine, they call him Pansy, but not Rose or Tulip. And another thing I have observed is that a woman is never called after a tree, only a flower because the purpose of a flower is to attract a bee. And the tree, the tree stands alone, blissfully alone. The tree provides air and shelter and food. So I think all mothers should be given a second name after a tree. I think my neighbor Samara mentioned how sacred the date palm tree is to Iraqis. And the Americans, when they invaded, one of the things they did was chop off all the tops in case there were any bombs hidden in the palm trees are pretty transparent. But that really devastated them. She says her earliest memory is drawing a daffodil in her own blood because that is what her name means. And uh, once she got to the meaning of her name, she just mused on this subject. But of course, when I get to the core of it, which is the tree, the tree stands alone. That's what she feels at the present time. Everybody's dead and gone. Her son is dead. Her husband's dead. 
and she is enduring. She has endured the, the almost unendurable, as so many women do, and women in war particularly. And especially when, as she says in the beginning of the torture story, that 99% of people give up everyone they know immediately. And the fact that she didn't is quite extraordinary. Uh, what I wanted to explore was the ethical conundrum that she found herself in. So all she had to do was tell them where her husband was and they'd all be freed and her child, her children would be fine. This was an eight-year-old boy. And so when we consider this, we're saying, what, you're protecting an adult when a child is being tortured, really? And what she tries to explain to us because I tried to understand this, is that we can't even fathom that a million children's lives are at stake because her husband was the head of the only plausible opposition to Saddam Hussein, who really, truly was a tyrant. He had my neighbor's brother buried alive, for instance. Uh, that it, it, was be like, it would be like, as it says in the script, like giving up Nelson Mandela because... The, the lives of so many children. And she also really did not believe they would do this. She said at this point, they really wanted to appeal to the hearts and minds of the people that, that, that they will be a great government. She, and she just couldn't believe it was possible. So in a sense, it was her naivete. It was her absolute belief in the necessity of uh, her husband continuing the work to oppose Saddam Hussein and the possibility of success. Of course, the horrific irony is right after her child, her son died, they came in laughing and said, well, we got your husband anyway. So it's, I'm interested as a dramatist always in ethical quandaries. I want myself first and then the audience to walk out saying, ah, that's not easy. Now that I understand her, I don't know what I would have done because all of us in this room would say, well, of course we'd give up an adult if a child is threatened. And it's not just that it was her husband, not at all. But then given these circumstances, we say, oh, this is something we haven't any notion about what this is. And, and we like her, so we want to like her. And then she takes us down this road, and we think, you didn't. And she says at one point, and he kept coughing. He had, they had thrown him on the roof. And I still didn't give up my husband's name. And then his cough was weaker. And I still didn't give up his name. So she is very torn about it. I don't know that she can ever truly forgive herself, even though she believes her son has forgiven her. I think at the end, if I remember, she says, you, you might wonder, where is her faith now? And she says, yes, it's true, it, it dried up. But then her, the ghost of her son spoke to her, and so it came back because he forgave her. And when she understood that he forgave her, he understood her, and that once she dies, they will fly around Baghdad, putting all the tops in the date palm trees. Uh, but for now, she has to watch. 
For days and days I lay there, and the only thing keeping me breathing was that I could hear my son coughing on the roof. That gave me such happiness, such hope to hear him cough. I knew he was sick. He probably even had pneumonia, but the coughing meant that he was alive. And as long as he was alive, when they let us go, I could nurse him to good health again. I was sure they would try to look like good-hearted men, and at the very last minute, they would let us go. I was so sure. And that is why I did not speak. Every hour was like a day, every day like a year. His cough was stronger and louder, and then it began to get weaker and weaker. Why did I not speak then? But uh, I'm interested in something that torments us always, that we go to our deathbed not understanding ourselves fully. Even though at the end she says, you know, he has forgiven me, and we will fly around Baghdad taking the tops off the date palm trees. Even if the person that we believe we have harmed forgives us, if we really feel we have acted against our own conscience, I don't know that we ever fully forgive ourselves or, or, or that we should. I sat through, obviously, all the rehearsals initially in two sets, one in New York first and then one here. And uh, I can't listen to it. It's too much because I was inside it. I probably won't, as I can see, you've done an amazing job with the recording. I love what you've done. Um, I, I don't think I'll be able to listen to that part of it. I can't hear it again, knowing it's true. So, they began to torture my son, Fadil. They said, all we want to know is where is your father? You tell us you can have bread and water. About six hours later, he said he would tell them. I was almost relieved, but then he told them a lie. They gave him bread and water while the others went to find my husband. He whispered to my older son that the reason he told the lie was that although he knew they would keep beating him, he thought the bread and water would give him the strength to keep the secret to endure more torture. It's sort of like the three uh, stories in the palace. She says the first was torture light, where... No, it wasn't even torture light. They just ask you questions. She says the majority of people tell a giveaway everybody they know because she says torture changes everything. We can't judge anybody. Uh, and then she said if they don't, because some people will not give their family members away, they go to the second story down, which is torture light, nails, things like that. And uh, then it's the chamber of horrors, which is where she and her children ended up. And so I think that the structure of the play mimics that walk into the depths. So the process is starting with uh, an event or a character and then just going, going with it and seeing where it takes me. And then I get in there and structure it. 
It starts with a truth that needs to be told, that I feel needs to be told at first. And I feel if there's a story that needs to be told, it will come out. And if nothing comes out, it's not time to tell anything yet. That's why commissions are so hard, because they're a great thing for writers to get a little money and some sort of subject. And then, but I feel somehow because the writer is working for somebody to please, um, it's an assignment. I find that commissions almost always, no matter how good they are, they feel a little like an assignment. And I found that looking at other writers' work as well. I could say, oh, that's a commission. Even though it's it's really good, it's just missing the raw mystery of the writer somehow. When, they, when you don't know what you're doing and the story just comes out of you. I often think when I'm writing theater, I think of it as a piece of music. It's a very important aspect of it um, for me that the human voice is musical and you're creating uh, a kind of symphony and you're only hearing the one tone in this. Lindy England is a completely other tone and then David Kelly and then this. And um, that's what makes it a complete play is this the, 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 the full musical structure. This is only one third of the music. It was, it was very presumptuous and bold of me to take real people. I'd never done that before. I'd had characters inspired loosely by real people, but things would change. And their voice would be completely different or circumstances would, be, there'd just be some inspiration. But of course, they're not them. As soon as you write something, even if I were to sort of write my mother, it wouldn't be her because as soon as I put it on paper, it's, it's my perspective at that moment and it's fiction. You can't, that's why we can't write ourselves. It's impossible to write ourselves. And I've found many times with students who write about a real situation, the only character that doesn't work is the one that's them. Because we can't see ourselves as others see us. We're thinking we're the sort of observer, and that works in novels when it's the third person who's the sort of placid, gentle, um, all-knowing observer who, who doesn't have much character. And of course, we do have character, and we like to think of ourselves that way. I've learned certain things. Trust your instinct that if you have to ask somebody, do you think that's too much? Do you think that, that, that it is too much? <laughs> or does that sound corny? Yes, it does. <laughs> so just trust that funny feeling in your gut. Uh, something I still struggle with is the balance between mystery and clarity. And don't over-explain, but don't confuse us. I don't like intermissions. <laughs> uh, I think when you are when you lose control of it a bit, and in the beginning, that's a good thing. It's coming through you. It's bigger than you. It's something when it's best. I don't quite know how it happened, and I just scramble to serve it with technique and everything that I have learned. And brevity is a really good thing. Many nights I had a dream that when I would finally die, which happened in the first Gulf War, when I was killed right here in this apartment by an American bomb, I would finally again see my son. I knew that he would smile to me just as he did on my darkest day, a smile that said, forgive, forgive yourself, Mama, because I forgave you. 
and he takes my hand and together we fly. We fly around Baghdad, putting the crowns back on all the date palm trees. It is very nice, this flying. Just the same as in your dreams, only better. So we flew for a while. But after a while, he said, Mama, you must go back to Baghdad and watch over our people with all the other ghosts. Me, I am a child, so I can go to paradise now. But you, you must watch, because the worst, Mama, the worst is yet to come. You must watch until there is finally peace. But don't worry, I will wait for you. So I am here watching with the thousands of other ghosts who are watching with me. Oh, there are more every day. Do you see them all? They are everywhere, all around us. And when there is finally peace, Fadil will come again and we will fly together. We will fly through the crowns of the Nakala and into the eyes of Allah. I, the impact on me when I'm writing something so dark as this is a kind of release. It's uh, that I have told, I've carried a very difficult package and I've delivered it. It's like this has to be taken and delivered and I've done it. And it's been really hard and a real strain and now I'm a bit freer because it's delivered. My earliest memories is drawing in my own blood, drawing a flower, a daffodil for the school nurse. Looking back, I can't imagine why they were taking the blood of a child at school. It wasn't enough to send to a lab, just enough to draw a daffodil. I drew a daffodil because that is my name, Nerjas, daffodil in Arabic. My Western friends tell me there is no such name in English, although there are many of flower names. There is Rose, there is Dahlia, there is Lily, there is Violet, there is Viola. I laughed when my British friends said to me, Now what is the correct spelling of your name, dear? How can you talk of correct spelling when you transcribe Arabic into English? It is phonetics only. 
What is fascinating to me is that women are the names of flowers, but not all flowers. Because if you are English and you are named Daffodil, people will laugh. That is what my friends have told me. And if they want to insult a man, say to a man that he is not masculine, they call him Pansy, but not Rose or Tulip. And another thing I have observed is that a woman is never called after a tree, only a flower, because the purpose of a flower is to attract a bee. And the tree, the tree stands alone, blissfully alone. The tree provides air and shelter and food. So I think all mothers should be given a second name after a tree. Do you see the tree outside my window? Ah, isn't that a beautiful view? I can see the whole world from here. This tree, this is a date palm, or the nakla. So tall, elegant, proud, and beautiful. And how should I say it? Enduring, much like a woman. A fully grown tree, like a fully grown woman, does not need much of anything save a little rain now and then, like me. Some people feel sorry. She is old, over 50 now, can't attract a man. Are you joking with me? You think I want to attract a man? Oh, yes, I am dying to wash his feet and make his bed and cook and clean and soothe him and praise him and say he is so strong and sexy and smart and bury myself alive. Although I loved, adored my husband, he was an extraordinary man. I will tell you about this later. It was only once I was all alone that I could live in the land of myself. People ask me, aren't you lonely with your husband dead and your children elsewhere and gone? Surely you will die of loneliness. I am not lonely. I am a full-grown tree. Just as the leaves breathe out into the air and fill it with healing substances, I breathe out my memories. Good and bad. It is not company I want. It is to bring back what I can never bring back. And anyway, you will know that I deserve to be alone, for I have committed the greatest sin of all. So, the date palm tree. When she has age, she doesn't need much. But when she is young, she requires a great deal of special attention to truly flourish and bear fruit, like every young girl. Like my daughters, oh, so much attention, or else they wilt like flowers in the heat and have such anger and screaming at their mother. Every year, an arborist, is that the word? Good for me, huh? has to climb up each tree at least four times. I watch them from this window. It is one of my greatest joys. The lowest row of drying leaves must be removed, of course. Sometimes I lean out and I would say, hey, you missed one right there. And then in April, this tree has to be pollinated. In August, the dangling dates have to be 
positioned so they are supported. Otherwise, they just, you know, hang down and be ruined. In September or October, the dates are harvested. Such a happy time. It is an amusing puzzle to me that in the West, dates are only eaten by the average person in something you call a date squares. They say they are too sweet and rich for the Western palate. And yet, what about this fudge? When I was in America, they sold this fudge everywhere. Is this not oversweet and overrich and overcreamy with zero nutritional value? I don't get it. English is a funny language. How is it permissible to say the idiom, I don't get it? But if you were to say, I don't catch it, the whole room laughs. So, back to blood. One of the exhibits at the Umm al-Marik Mosque in central Baghdad was a copy of the Koran written in Saddam Hussein's own blood. This is ironic. This is blasphemic. Why do the heavens not rain tears and the earth vomit blood at this outrage? The holy book written in the blood of the devil? I wonder who told him to do that. Or did he think of it himself? Did Amula demand of him to do this as his proof of his love for Allah? Or did his mother or wife say to him, you must appease the mullahs or they will defeat you? Because they will defeat you if they want to defeat you. They are as water, which eventually defeats everything. Is there anything more powerful than the love of God? I want to tell you a secret. Before I had babies, I did not really believe in God. I said that I did. Everyone thought me very religious. I went to the mosque. I prayed five times a day. I observed all the rituals, food, the dress, all of it. But in my heart, in my secret thoughts, I did not believe. I thought to myself, I thought maybe this is mass delusion. As Karl Marx has said, the opiate of the people. And then I hated myself for even thinking that, who do you think you are? And I would smack myself in the face. I wanted to believe. I prayed to Allah to help me believe in him. I prayed so hard I drew blood from my lip, but he would give me no help, and I felt like an imposter, pretending I would never tell my secret to anyone, even my husband, because an infidel has no friends. My soul was an empty space until I had my first child, a son, I looked at him and I saw Allah. I cannot explain this, it is beyond words. My faith came back like a great river which has been dry and begins again to flow. And every time I felt it drying up because of the terrible, the unspeakable things that were happening to my people, I looked at the face of my son and my faith returned. Listen, 
no matter how bad things get in your country. And I know you have your terrible sex and blood crimes. There are many gang shootings and your prisons are full. But you cannot, I do not want to be rude, but I am telling you, you cannot even begin to imagine what life was like under Saddam Hussein. To even say his name makes my stomach sick. And I will not offend any of God's creatures by calling him a beast. There is only one word for such an evil human being, Shaitan, Satan. Because Satan means to me the human embodiment of evil. And I do not mean by this ignorance. I remember the day of the coup. I was in a taxi cab. He was taking me to school. I was a high school teacher then, when I was a young mother. The radio was on, but I was not listening. Suddenly, the cab driver stopped. He got out of the car. He cried, all of Iraq is burning. The Ba'athists, with the support of the American CIA, had killed the president and all of the ministers. We were entering the age of darkness. I laughed out loud when Saddam's statue was toppled, and I cheered when the devil was turned into the rodent he truly was and captured in the claws of the eagle. I was overjoyed to see elections hopeful. I would like to have voted. I thought, maybe, maybe there is at last some light. But this moment of light and hope was an illusion. How stupid was I, huh? To think for even one moment that life might be better. That the Americans and their murderous brothers, the British, cared about us, about our freedom, our children. Ha! This hope was a flash, a lightning flash in the pitch dark, and it is gone. Iraq is once again hell. Could hell be as bad? Those who supposedly came to liberate us. It reminds me of a young woman I know who had been taken off the street one day by officials and raped many, many times. At the end of the day, they threw her out of the car to the side of the road, in the countryside. She crawled along, bruised and bleeding, half-naked, and soon a car stopped. A very kind and gentle man with his family stopped and helped her to the car. The wife covered her and they took her to their home nearby. The wife drew a bath for her and said they would call her family while she cleaned herself and rested. As the children played in the house, the man sneaked into the bathroom and raped her again in the bath. She did not cry out because she did not want to embarrass his family. And when her own family arrived, thanking this man so profusely, bringing him gifts. Those who say they have come to save us have come to destroy us. So, my sin, hal-haram, the worst sin of all. On the day of the devil, the Ba'athist coup, they rounded up anybody they believed was a threat. That day, my husband went into hiding. I myself was arrested at work, taken from school, interrogated, and after a few days, released. 
My mother, thank God, was with the children. Oh, yes. Everyone we knew was put in prison for a time. Anybody who was thinking, intellectual, active, anybody who was political and could be a threat, anybody who was a member of the Communist Party. Everyone I knew was a member of the Communist Party. Oh, wait, I can see you are pulling away from me when I say communist. But this is not the Communist Party of Stalin or Mao or Pol Pot or post-war Europe. Far, far from it. All of the kind and thinking and peace-loving people in Iraq at that time were members of the Communist Party. You would all have been members of the Communist Party. Oh, yes. Ask anyone now. The Communist Party was the only one that welcomed people of all religions and backgrounds. And it was the only party prepared to fight to the death to free the people. It broke our hearts that the United States, land of the free, home of the brave, liberty and justice for all, was supporting the coup. After the coup, the CIA gave the secret police a list of the names of everyone in the Communist Party. They were making the Ba'ath army and their torturers all powerful. We had to be very secretive. We had to let our babies cry at night so that our cries would cover the sound of typing. If the secret police heard typing, they would arrest us immediately. One day they took my little brother. He was a silly boy. He liked to dance with girls and drink alcohol and wear expensive clothing, and he was at the university. He was taken. We did not know where he was. We received a phone call in the morning. We are sending him home in a taxi. We waited all day. The taxi arrived. The taxi driver said, Allah Akbar, there is a God, because my brother was incredibly still alive. We rushed him into the house because if the neighbors saw they would shun us, they would be, of course, afraid of guilt by association. And he was so badly beaten, we couldn't recognize his face. And he, he could see nothing. My other brother cried and my mother said, don't cry. This is the way men learn to be men. It seems harsh, but you have to understand the way we lived and what it was to be a man. So, the monsters we lived in fear of were the Ba'ath secret police, Jihaz Hanin. If you can believe it in English, the instruments of yearning. Can you explain that to me, please? The torture jail was a fairy tale castle from long ago where the king had lived. We had not liked him either. He was Saudi, but he was nothing compared to Saddam. The gardens were tended by a master gardener, a true genius of nature. And so the castle was called the Palace of Flowers until this dark age when it became the Palace of the End. Kazir al-Nihaya, Iraq's own house of horrors. 
Our children weren't afraid of fictional witches or monsters. Those stories are only for peaceful places. Our children had nightmares about the palace of the end. Oh, people of Iraq, by God, I shall strip you like bark. I shall truss you like a bundle of twigs. I shall beat you like stray camels. By God, what I promise, I fulfill. What I purpose, I accomplish. What I measure, I cut off. So said Al-Hajjaj, the newly arrived governor of Iraq, in the year 694. So said Saddam. So said George Bush and Tony Blair. And here we are. As I said, my husband had been in hiding ever since the coup, as he at the time was the great visionary leader of this communist party. Oh yes, he was a beautiful and courageous man. He had huge popular support and he was poised to begin a revolution. Yes, it would have taken years, but it would have happened and so many lives would have been saved. We all believed fervently in this revolution, watching our friends and loved ones disappear or at best be tortured beyond recognition. It gave us hope. So we would do anything to protect this possibility. You must understand that countless lives depended upon our success. (laughs) I just thought now of an amusing story. A friend of mine who lives in America now, he was in Washington, D.C. at a a party or event, and the wife of the U.S. ambassador to Iraq in the 60s and 70s said of the Ba'athist coup, Oh, it was a terrible time. My God, we lost all our electricity. We had to go around by candlelight, and it was cold at night. My friend just laughed and laughed. He said, Madam, for you it was electricity. For us, it was death. So, imagine me, a young and very beautiful woman. Well, it's true. You see me now in my fifties, I am a handsome woman. But then, oh, I have pictures. I had now four children. My son, 15, Nahadne. I had a two-years-old girl, Layla, and a precious eight-years-old son, Fadil, the light of my life, my helper, my inspiration, my mischievous monkey. Also, I was eight months pregnant. Well, one day, as I knew they would, they came for us. Thank God they let my mother take Layla, but they took Nahadne from school and me from my home. I had been boiling an egg to have with a date. It's true. And in came the thugs. And you know who they were? You might wonder, who were these secret police? How did they collect so many eager criminals and sadists? Well, I tell you, they were the local bullies. 
One of them I recognised. He used to bother me when my brother and I went to the movies. He would harass me, say filthy things, and my brother, he gave him a warning. That's who it was. The losers. The ones who would torture animals. Those people you avoid. So, they took us to the prison. I remember thinking, thank God they do not have Fadil, my eight-year-old son. He, he will know when he comes back to an empty house, he will know to go to the neighbor's. He had been carrying some mail from one house to another. Young boys would always do that for us, for they were so fast and so small. So, we are driving up to the palace. Like an American horror movie. Now, the castle has three stories. The highest floor is where they would take you to talk. The surroundings were quite nice. A reasonable conversation. If you were willing to talk, then you talked. You betrayed everyone you knew, and you were free to go. Sadly, some were so afraid of torture, they talked immediately. I don't judge anyone. Everyone is different, and torture changes everything. Then, if you didn't wish to talk, they would send you down to the main floor. It was what we call torture light. Beatings, broken bones, nails removed, that kind of thing. And if you still didn't talk, you were sent to the basement. There were bodies everywhere. Bodies of people you knew. Once you have smelled the smell of death, of mass murder and suffering, nothing smells sweet again. Not ever again. The memory, no, not the memory, the actual smell, remains always somewhere in every breath you take. So, at first we were sent to the highest floor and we refused to speak. So, after an hour or so, we were sent to the first floor, a small room. Me, my 15-year-old son, and my torturers. The first thing they did, they held my belly in their hands. They laughed, and they said, who did this to you? I turned to my son. I said, do not listen to them. They are half men. And then I said, it is the child of my husband. And they asked to me, where is your husband? I said that I did not know. They started only by jumping on my feet and hitting my son's nose with a hammer. They hit him until he could not feel it. So he stopped crying out, and then they stopped hitting him because they knew it did not hurt anymore. We were inside hell now. I only prayed I would not lose the baby. My son and I looked at each other. I knew he would be strong. This went on for hours. Needless to say, I was raped many times in front of my son. They forced him to watch, but he did not see. His eyes looked into my eyes only. So wise for 15. And then... When I thought they will let us go, 
At this point, they did not want to be seen killing women, especially pregnant women or children. They were trying to win the hearts and minds of the people still. And this is what is taboo in every culture in the world, I think, the last taboo. And just at that moment when the head torturer said to me, oh, we will let you go, but next time, in through the door comes another with my eight years old son, Fadil. They had caught him as he was running with the mail. Someone must have pointed him out to them. Someone had betrayed us. They had blindfolded him. He was very frightened of the dark. They had beaten him about the face even before bringing him in. My son. They let me embrace him once. First, they asked him to tell them where his father was. He said he didn't know. He had been well trained. And then they began to beat me again and rape me again to scare him into speaking, to protect his mother, but he knew. I turned my face to him to make sure he was alive. And you know what he did? He smiled at me. He kept smiling to give me courage. And he was eight years old. What song did not flow with honey if you were to smile your praise upon it? Nazik al-Malaika, a great Iraq poetess. So, they began to torture my son, Fadil. They said, all we want to know is where is your father? You tell us you can have bread and water. About six hours later, he said he would tell them. I was almost relieved, but then he told them a lie. They gave him bread and water while the others went to find my husband. He whispered to my older son that the reason he told the lie was that although he knew they would keep beating him, he thought the bread and water would give him the strength to keep the secret to endure more torture. And so they came back and so beat him more. I was tied up on my back, forced to watch, as was my older son. Well, Fadel lied three times. Three times he got bread and water, but the third time they were onto his trick. They were furious. Now they beat him hard with the full strength of men. He said to my older son, I'm dying. He said, I feel death around me. I want you to take care of my mother and little sister. They thought, what more can we do? What can we do to break down this child and his mother? Meanwhile, as they had taken away my older son, Nahadni, I did not know where. What they did then? Do you notice I have no fan here in my apartment? And it is 40 degrees outside and probably 45 in here? There was a fan in the torture room, right above me where I was tied. They grabbed little Fadil by his shirt. He was able to look at me one last time, my precious boy. He looked into my eyes with his beautiful, sorrowful eyes, and he smiled. I said, I love you, my son. He did not scream. He did not even whimper. My son was more brave than many full-grown men, and he was eight years old.
They turn him upside down and they tie him to the ceiling fan upside down. They tie him to the ceiling fan and they turn it too fast. So my son is spinning. He is spinning round and round. I cannot put into words the feelings inside me. I was praying and he was praying. We were in the hands of the devil, no doubt, but we had faith. We would be delivered. Faith was all we had. Neither of us will speak. If we give in, we are giving not only our lives, but the lives of millions. It would be like giving up Nelson Mandela, you understand? It would be like saying, yes, you can go murder these million children to save ourselves. And I knew, I was quite certain they would not kill us because it was so deeply in my culture to never harm a pregnant woman or a child. I thought, we will survive this. My son will be known forever as the most heroic child ever lived. He will become a great leader. But he kept spinning. My son, who loved to write stories and draw pictures of animals, who named our black and white cat Jawar, precious, loved geckos, gave everyone he saw a name. And you know, in Iraq, they are everywhere. But he had a story for each one and always hoped to see a cheetah for there are a few cheetahs in Iraq. He would pray to Allah to see a cheetah and have a running contest, for he was a very fast runner. Spinning upside down over my face. And still, I did not speak. The baby was turning and turning inside my belly. I fainted many, many times that day. After hours and hours of the spinning, my son, of course, was unconscious, and they threw him on the roof. It was cold then. It was winter. He had no coat, of course, and they carried me up to an attic room just underneath the roof and tied me down. And still, I did not speak. For days and days I lay there, and the only thing keeping me breathing was that I could hear my son coughing on the roof. That gave me such happiness, such hope to hear him cough. I knew he was sick. He probably even had pneumonia, but the coughing meant that he was alive. And as long as he was alive, when they let us go, I could nurse him to good health again. I was sure they would try to look like good-hearted men, and at the very last minute, they would let us go. I was so sure. And that is why I did not speak. Every hour was like a day, every day like a year. His cough was stronger and louder, and then it began to get weaker and weaker. Why did I not speak then? And weaker still. And then he did not cough anymore.
They came in laughing. We found your husband anyway, you foolish woman. And oh, we are sorry about your son. We were going to let him go today, but he must have a very weak constitution. He is with Allah. The Palace of the End. Succor? Is that the word? For sustenance of the soul? Ha! Alliteration. Like Shakespeare. I like that in English. Not the same in Arabic. Impossible to explain. So, my succor these days is poetry's. I am not talented to write it, but I am talented to learn. I have learned much Iraqi poetry by great Iraqi women. I have memorized by heart. I say it out loud every day to my date tree, to the dead who are all with me, to my father, to my mother, to my husband, and always, of course, to my son. You might be wondering after that, does she still believe in Allah? If she found Allah in the face of her son, where is he now? Where are her rivers of faith? Isn't my date tree so beautiful? Did you know there are more than 300 varieties of dates? Can you imagine? When I was pregnant with my oldest son, I wanted to try every kind of date, but I stopped at 100. Yes, 100. Actually, they all taste pretty much the same, but don't tell an Iraqi I said that. You know that for hundreds, thousands of years, the dates, together with camel milk, was the diet of the Bedouins, just as potatoes was the diet of the Irish. To harm this tree, it is unforgivable. A military saying from ancient times is, do not kill a woman, a child, or an old man. Do not cut a tree. But what happened to that? That is only a joke now, that is... Collateral damage. One of the sites that made my blood freeze during the long Iraq-Iran war in the 1980s was the orchards of date palms with all trees with their tops taken off, bare. Now the U.S. Army has torn down thousands of trees on the road leading to the airport. For security, they say. But a palm tree is not like your maple tree or your evergreen. It cannot hide anybody. Of course, my faith was gone. The riverbeds were dry. But my soul was not empty. And I will tell you why. Many nights I had a dream that when I would finally die, which happened in the first Gulf War, when I was killed right here in this apartment by an American bomb, I would finally again see my son. I knew that he would smile to me just as he did on my darkest day, a smile that said, Forgive, forgive yourself, Mama, because I forgave you. And he takes my hand and together we fly. We fly around Baghdad, putting the crowns back on all the date palm trees. 
It is very nice, this flying. Just the same as in your dreams, only better. So we flew for a while. But after a while, he said, Mama, you must go back to Baghdad and watch over our people with all the other ghosts. Me, I am a child, so I can go to paradise now. But you, you must watch, because the worst, Mama, the worst is yet to come. You must watch until there is finally peace. But don't worry, I will wait for you. So I am here watching with the thousands of other ghosts who are watching with me. Oh, there are more every day. Do you see them all? They are everywhere, all around us. And when there is finally peace, Fadil will come again and we will fly together. We will fly through the crowns of the Nakala and into the eyes of Allah. That was episode two of Play Me Mono. The episode was edited by Chris Tolley, and Judith's monologue was edited by Gregory J. Sinclair. Visit playmepodcast.com to learn more about our shows, leave a comment, or let us know what you think of our podcast. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley. The associate producer is Pippa Johnstone. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Special thanks to our partners, the Playwrights Guild of Canada, Factory Theatre, Tarragon Theatre, and the Musical Stage Company. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.